0: Hello and welcome all. My name is Marissa, and you are listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Well, folks, we've made it to episode 8, and this is gonna be a big one. We're about to cover the story that introduces the character who is quite possibly our hero's greatest nemesis. Roll credits. You're going to have some questions after this one. I can already sense it. But we are getting ahead of ourselves, so let's not waste any more time, and let's jump right into it. Part 1. The Machinations of a Madman. Issue Discussed. Tales of Suspense number 50. Caught in the clutches of the hands of the Mandarin. Yes, dear listener, you heard that title correctly. The feature story of TOS number 50, cover dated February 1964 and released November 12, 1963, contains the first ever appearance of the Mandarin. But wait, you might be thinking, why is the Mandarin fighting Iron Man? Wasn't that guy just an imposter? But didn't the real guy appear in a completely different movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? As being affiliated with a completely different hero? Those are all very good questions. And the answer to each one of those questions is... It's complicated. And that's not just a cop-out answer. It's actually very, very complicated. But we can talk a little more about it after the story summary. Let's quickly dispatch with the customary introductory credits and get on with it. This story was written by Stan Lee, penciled in ink by Don Heck, and lettered by Ray Holloway. No colors credit is given in the story itself or on the Marvel Fandom Wiki. The opening splash pages well, it's something, all right. Mandy is front and center, larger than life, literally towering over a hero, and unfortunately portrayed in that awful stereotypical appearance, but sadly, we'll just Kind of have to deal with that for now as a product of the time. Which while still acknowledging that it being a product of its time doesn't make it right. Though this is the first we see of him, he makes a bold statement that he has made a vow to destroy Iron Man and that the Mandarin never fails. We'll just have to read on to see if he's right. Meeting the Mandarin. We open proper on page two on our good old villain berating a servant assistant who came to alert him about visitors to his castle located in quote unquote Red China. Yeah, don't worry. We'll get back to this bit of casually racist goodness. He considers dispatching these guys immediately, but instead opts to allow them in, by force, and hear their grievances before dispatching of them. The guests are a group of soldiers for the Chinese army, who have come to request that the Mandarin share his knowledge of atomic weaponry in order to allow them to have a credible threat to hang over the rest of the world and to rise up in standing on the world stage likely to be on even or higher footing with dirty capitalist powers like the United States. Mandy, of course, doesn't want to do this, because he wants to rule the world all on his own, and he has no interest in assisting any kind of government power. And he chases the soldiers away, allowing them a minute to get out of his sight before he presumably disintegrates them. Total presumption on my part, based on context, since he absolutely could do this with the power of one of his ten magic rings that he wears, one on each finger. More on this later. Iron Man Receives His Mission Back in the States, bottom of page three, we learn that the U.S. military has intelligence on the Mandarin, and they want an inside look at his operations. But they can't send an obvious U.S. intelligence operative for fear of being found out. And inciting a needless international conflict. So they enlist the aid of Iron Man instead. Apparently the Mandarin is so elusive as to be practically a ghost story or urban legend. Iron Man's never heard of the guy, but regardless he agrees to do a little espionage for them without questioning their motives or their ultimate goal here. The fact that he so readily agrees to play a lapdog for the military serves as the reader's regular reminder that at this point in history, our dear old shellhead is effectively a government stooge. Again, this will change over time, but for now, yeah, it's not great. It's not a great look for our boy here. After agreeing to play secret agent for the uniforms in Washington, Iron Man decides he should probably leave right away and returns to Stark Industries. You guessed it, still unnamed to put his house in order as Tony Stark. As he changes out of his armor and back into civilian attire, page 4, panel 1, he remembers that he was meant to attend an employee's dinner and give a speech, but since he has higher priorities now, he'll just have to blow it off, apologizing to a gentleman named Bill for not being able to attend on his way to make the rounds. He decides, seemingly off the cuff, to have Happy attend in his place. And Pepper, overhearing that her boss won't be at the shindig that night, gets super irritated that he is seemingly avoiding her. Bill also gets irritated, thinking that the boss can't be bothered wasting time with us poor stooges. Happy doesn't take kindly to this kind of slander, and goes ahead and decks the guy one real good. But Tony reprimands him, and tells him that he'll deal with anyone who gets out of line, And that though he appreciates Happy, if he tries that again, he's through here. Wow, Tony. The guy was just trying to stand up for you. At least show some gratitude. Pepper finally gets his attention and chews him out for avoiding her when she's trying to show off her new makeup. Her freckles are gone now. Boo. Oddly enough, Happy feels the same way we do. Let's hope this change doesn't stick around for very long, the whole changing my appearance to get someone to notice me trope is so old and just not great in general and I'm not a fan. And besides Pepper is cuter with freckles. We'll catch up with Happy and Pepper again a bit later. For now, Iron Man has a plane to catch. Let's jump ahead a few hours later as we follow our hero on his mission to infiltrate the Mandarin stronghold. Infiltrating the Mandarin stronghold. An unmarked jet that was somehow able to fly into Chinese airspace without being detected and summarily blown out of the sky airdrops Iron Man in a presumably unmonitored area. Guess US intelligence isn't as top notch as they claim, as unbeknownst to this reconnaissance team, the area actually is being monitored by a group of onlooking soldiers who notice the intruder diving headfirst into their vicinity. The soldiers are far away enough to know this intruder is definitely a spy, but not quite close enough to recognize who it is. Their initial plan was just to wait it out, see where the interloper lands, then track him down and take him out and or capture him. After some time, when they don't see a parachute deploy, they then assume that the intruder is Just an idiot who just fell to his death. Which of course is false, since Iron Man was simply waiting until he was out of potential sight before deploying his jet boots, flying low to the ground, and landing safely outside the grounds of the Mandarin's castle. However, before Iron Man has a chance to start advancing toward the castle, he finds himself surrounded by an advanced patrol of the Mandarin's private guard, who are dressed the same as the guards previously mentioned confirming for us, the readers, that the Mandarin does indeed have his own private army separate from the Chinese military. They charge in to take him, crying, Death to the enemy intruder! Page 6, panel 1. And thinking that they have the stranger's number, what with them having the advantage attacking from behind and having greater numbers. My well, Iron Man doesn't have time for these fools. He dispatches them right quick and continues on toward the Mandarin stronghold, leaving the guards knocked out cold on the ground where they once stood. But a troubling conundrum now presents itself. He checks his armor status and, you guessed it, he's running low on power, apparently due to a short circuit somewhere in his armor, so he's got no time to waste. And of course, old Mandy has a few more tricks for him up his sleeve in terms of security measures. The first of which being hidden laser arrays, uh, hidden in the magnetic walls that do the combo job of dragging Iron Man towards lasers that will supposedly do him in. Iron Man escapes this trap, only to be stuck in another one. This one, the classic hallway of doom, the one of the collapsing wall variant, a staple in all good supervillain strongholds. Iron Man escapes the event in the ceiling. Presumably following the air ducts to the center of the fortress, where he finally comes face to face with the Mandarin himself. The two adversaries engage in a battle of wits. Mandy congratulates Iron Man for a job well done, making it to him alive, as he is now going to make sure he doesn't stay that way, as he pushes a button on a console that fires a paralysis ray at our hero. And Iron Man claps back, calling him a... Weak apology for Genghis Khan, with an asterisk, <laughs> and saying that he can take anything that Mandy can dish out, proving it by using his chest beam to dispel the paralysis ray. Page 7, panel 6 and 7. Iron Man then dramatically proclaims that he now knows the world will never be safe as long as a madman like the Mandarin is free, and that he'll make sure he never menaces anyone else again, or die trying. He's very fond of these dramatic hyperboles, isn't he? We will talk more about the Genghis Khan jab in the reflection section, as it, in hindsight, does come with a bit of in-universe-based irony, making it a little more significant and not just a random racist remark like it first appears. Although, admittedly, it also is still just that. The Mandarin remarks on how bold Iron Man's statement is before finally demonstrating why exactly he is considered to be so deadly and dangerous, as he now starts to display the power of the magic rings he wears, one on each finger, ten in total, and each one with a unique and equally deadly power. The ten rings of the Mandarin are a formidable force not to be taken lightly. One by itself is dangerous, all ten together are a catastrophe waiting to happen in the wrong hands. And if those hands belong to old Mandy here, then it is certain doom to anyone who dares challenge him unprepared. TLDR, if you come for the Mandarin, you best not miss. Boruchel had learned this lesson the hard way, as he struggles against the power of the first two of these deadly artifacts, combined with the paralysis ray, which he had shrugged off so easily before, but is now hopelessly outmatched by, as it is used in tandem with the rings. And now, a brief interlude. We're allowed to take a short breather in the midst of this tension, on the bottom panels of page 9, as we, as promised, check back in with Pepper. She is still irritated at not being asked to the employee's dinner by Tony, and she begrudgingly sucks it up to call Happy instead to ask him to take her as his date since he is attending in Tony's place. She has to do it in this kind of roundabout and irritatingly indirect manner, because this story was written in the 60s, so she's not allowed to just ask him directly to take her, or even more forwardly, heaven forbid, just ask to take him instead. Happy, of course, is just thrilled that she's finally calling him, stating that he just knew she'd eventually come around to his irresistible charm, and that he'll pick her up right away, thinking that now he's really going to show her that he's a smooth operator. However, in her mind, he is an absolute last resort, thinking that he has all the charm of a rusty doorknob, but that he's better than no date at all. She, that's just cold-blooded lady. Poor Happy. Meanwhile, back at the plot, We now return to the main event at the top of page 10. Iron Man seems to have met his match against the rings of the Mandarin, and remember, he's only dealt with two of them so far. But wait, there's more! In addition to mastering the rings, the Mandarin is also a martial arts expert and demonstrates his prowess by chopping a metal beam clean in half with his bare hands. With skill like this, it stands to reason that he'd easily be able to punch through metal armor. As you can obviously imagine, that only spells bad news bears for our boy Shellhead. And, as previously demonstrated, Mandy gives as good as he gets. Even though Iron Man dodges the first blow, the Mandarin lands the second, grabbing Iron Man's left gauntlet and crushing it enough to put it out of commission and, implied, possibly damaging the actual wrist underneath the gauntlet. (laughs) Iron Man seems to think this blow is so damaging because his transistors are weak due to the Mandarin somehow tampering with his armor while he was down from the paralysis beam. But we've also already established that he was running low on power anyway prior to confronting the Mandarin. My dude, just admit he got one in on you. Don't make excuses. It isn't becoming... The Mandarin scuffs at what he sees as an attempt by Iron Man to escape and comes back in for a finishing blow. Then and only then does Iron Man actually admit to himself and a thought bubble that the Mandarin is not only powerful but also the smartest enemy he's encountered to date and that maybe he should have stayed home. The Mandarin apparently concurs, despite not knowing his opponent's thoughts. I guess he's a mind reader now as he now says he is through toying with him and he will now strike. In a last ditch effort to counter what will certainly be a fatal blow, Iron Man increases the power outlet to his right gauntlet with what little power he has left to block the Mandarin strike. It works, taking the Mandarin off guard, as striking a metal gauntlet should, and allowing Iron Man to make an escape, using the last of his power to leave the fortress and make his rendezvous with the plane that dropped him off in the first place which was apparently circling the area ready to pick him up. How it was able to do this again without being shot out of the sky for violating sovereign airspace is anybody's guess. The aftermath and a lingering concern. Final page shows that due to being narrowly able to escape the clutches of the mandarin by the skin of his teeth, he arrives home just in time to make an appearance as Tony Stark At the employee's gala after all, much to Pepper's delight and Happy's chagrin. While Pepper is a little irritated thinking she'll never get with her boss if he thinks she's with Happy, Happy can't help but notice the worried expression on Tony's face. He seems to think it's because he's with Pepper. When in reality, Tony's thoughts are far, far away on the other side of the globe, as he still has the Mandarin on his mind. He is deeply concerned that the man is still out there, continuing forward with whatever evil plans he's currently carrying out, and those plans most certainly now include removing Iron Man from the picture. He knows the Mandarin will likely come for him again, and based on his concern, we can gather that he's certain he's not ready. Well, he's just gonna have to get ready, because sure enough. The final panel of the story shows the Mandarin sitting on his throne, stewing and plotting his next scheme to progress his plans for world domination. Plans which now include, without a shadow of a doubt, the destruction of Iron Man, once and for all. For once, Tony's paranoia seems to actually be justified for a change. Our hero has finally met his match. The Mandarin is a powerful nemesis, indeed. Part 2. Retcons, References, and Reflections. What's the deal with the Mandarin anyway? Right off the bat, the Mandarin comes across as a harsh, cruel, and intimidating figure. Even though, to our 2023 sensibilities, he is very much an outdated racial caricature, and with all that entails the mostly white male creative team writing about red China during the Cold War comes across as ignorant and short-sighted as you'd expect. Surprisingly enough, in context, he's written to be clearly intimidating and in no uncertain terms, is absolutely presented as a force designed to give our hero a run for his money, especially when compared to previous baddies we've met so far, who, while appearing to have the upper hand at first, ultimately didn't really stand a snowball's chance. At the risk of a bad pun, Jack Frost slash Blizzard certainly comes to mind. Though we haven't exactly covered the Mandarin's origin yet, and we won't until his next major appearance, I wanted to touch on it just a little bit conceptually because, oh boy, it is convoluted. Like Kingdom Hearts level of storytelling gymnastics. Apologies for those of you who don't get that reference. For a brief explanation, The video game series Kingdom Hearts is notorious for being needlessly convoluted in terms of its storytelling and bizarre plot twists. The Mandarin is designed to not only be brilliant in his own right, as well as cutthroat, but also cunning and deceptive. And he will change his own story to suit his needs in order to manipulate whoever he needs to to reach his goals, including his adversaries. Without spoiling too much, since we will reach this point very shortly, there are at least three different versions of the Mandarin's origin, including and up to him being an apparent direct descendant of Genghis Khan. Remember the seemingly offhand jab from Iron Man earlier? Told you it was relevant. What's even better, due to his nature as a deceiver, a narcissist, and an unreliable narrator, we have no real way of knowing which version of his origin is the truth, and there is no direct confirmation either way out of the universe from any of the writers. I believe this is done intentionally to make him more mysterious, which makes him more of a threat. It also unfortunately makes him a little more difficult to deal with in outside media, though that isn't to say it's straight up impossible as it has been done before and quite effectively, though with different results. You don't even need to do any convoluted mental gymnastics, like the currently most well-known version outside the comics claimed was necessary. To prove case in point, we'll start with said most current version, that of the Mandarin of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the version that is most different with the most drastic changes and compare him to an alternate version of the Mandarin from another piece of Marvel media that shows you how you can effectively and successfully portray this character with very few changes and without insensitive racial stereotyping to boot. The Mandarin in the MCU, a.k.a. It's complicated. You knew it was coming, and yes, it's now time to address this particular elephant in the room. There sure are a lot of these in early Iron Man, aren't there? No doubt, some of y'all MCU-only peeps out there might be a bit confused. Wait, 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 wait a minute, you might be asking. Why is Iron Man, of all people, fighting the Mandarin? Wasn't he in that other MCU movie? With the martial artist dude? Yes. Yes, he was. Like I said before, coming back to reiterate that, the answer is, it's complicated. BOLDED, italicized, in all caps, COMPLICATED. By now, MCU folks will likely know this character as Wenwu, Conqueror, Wielder of the Ten Rings, and Leader of the Ten Rings Terrorist Organization, and Shang-Chi's father in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, released in 2021, and portrayed impeccably and with pinpoint precision and charisma by Tony Leung. The 10 rings wielded by Win Wu are also changed to be weighted wrist rings rather than the more jewelry-like rings worn on the fingers. And unlike in the comics where each ring has its own unique power with the already devastating effects multiplied when combined, the 10 rings in the MCU are created to be used even more in concert with one another with all having roughly the same power as far as we know at this point and having their primary use being to enhance the strength and precision of the wielder in hand-to-hand combat. However, this was the retcon the mostly middle-aged white suits at Marvel Studios believed they needed in order to make this iconic villain palatable to modern Western sensibilities and to not potentially upset the Asian market and people of Asian descent, specifically the Chinese market where there is a reportedly not insignificant amount of money made off these films. The fact is, the Mandarin was originally created as an Iron Man villain, and he's not related to Shang-Chi at all, not to my knowledge at least, time of recording. The creatives who work with Marvel Studios understand this, and understand how important he is to the Iron Man canon, and there have been several reported attempts, presumably, to include him in MCU Shall Head Story. He was originally set to cameo appear as the behind-the-scenes villain in the first Iron Man movie, pulling the strings behind Raza in the Ten Rings organization, who, if you recall, was hired by Obadiah Stane to assassinate Tony Stark before they realized who Tony really was and took him captive instead in an attempt to blackmail Stane for more money. This is the very reason why the terrorist group is specifically named the Ten Rings which comic fans know can only be a reference to the Ten Rings of the Mandarin. Heck, he's even mentioned in a one-shot comic created to promote the movie, alongside several other stories published around the time of the film's release that prominently feature him as a notable villain. One such comic was a six-issue miniseries titled Iron Man Enter the Mandarin, which retells the first major encounters with the Mandarin and provide more detail and context to the original stories. Including this crucial first appearance in D.O.S. number fifty. The more you know. When those initial plans fell through, they instead tried to slot him in in Iron Man three, but they, and I quote, tongue firmly in cheek, couldn't figure out how to make him work, and instead went with the Trevor Slattery slash Aldrich Killian fake-out nonsense, on top of a rather lackluster attempt at telling the extremist storyline. The modern Iron Man aesthetic has borrowed heavily from in the years following that story's initial publication. Gonna get this out of the way now. I don't necessarily hate Iron Man 3, I think there's some good stuff in it. The villain plot is just not one of them, and is egregious enough to weigh the entire movie down for me. As you can probably tell, I have a very hard time believing that couldn't figure out how to make it work business. In fact, I personally believe it's a big old load of crock, especially when the perfect example of an updated and modernized version of the Mandarin already existed in the greater Marvel Universe canon at the time of filming as the perfect example of how to update and redeem a character originally created with ambiguous intent. They needed only to look at the portrayal of the Mandarin as presented in the back half of Matt Fraction's Invincible Iron Man run to see how to create the perfect modernization of the character. This version of the Mandarin is not only a mystic, but also a shrewd businessman who created his own city-like empire that combines mysticism and technology to grant him the ultimate power he has craved his entire life, and he even went around kidnapping people with technical know-how that he wanted in order to increase his power even further. In an annual published around that time, one of those kidnappees is a well-known, in-universe, Chinese film director. And he forces this man to create the movie of the story of his life. And, building on the unreliable narrator bit that I told you about, the story he once told is a complete and total fabrication that naturally posits him as not only a warrior, but a selfless hero who stands up against the evil forces of capitalism, and even includes a rather unflattering and villainous interpretation of his armor-clad adversary. A bit unsettling, in hindsight, when modern writers already do a rather fantastic job of making Iron Man look like a villain when he was never supposed to be. But I digress. This stretch of fractions run is best example of taking a character that originally had less than favorable origins and reinterpreting him for the modern age. And if my math is correct, and it hardly ever is since I can't really math properly, it was pretty much either completed or almost completed around the time of filming Iron Man 3. The work was literally done already. The only reason I can think of as to why they didn't want the character to appear in the film in his rightful role as Iron Man's nemesis is just plain old optics. I'm sure you can see where that train of thought is going, so I'm not going to jump onto it. Besides, that's outside the purview of this podcast and quite frankly, not only do I not want to delve into that can of worms, but wait to be here all day if I did. So let's just move on, shall we? The Mandarin in Marvel Animation Alongside the example given in Fraction's Invincible Iron Man, We're now going to talk about an example of how the Mandarin can be modernized and presented in a believable way and present as a credible threat without being problematic or drastically changing his origin and background. To discuss this version, we're going to delve back into the world of Marvel Legacy Animation. From what I understand, a version of the Mandarin does appear in the 90s Iron Man animated series, but as of the writing and recording of this episode, I still haven't watched it. So I can't speak to the quality of that interpretation. No, no. In this example, we're going to be once again talking about the incredible series Iron Man Armored Adventures, which uses the Mandarin as its primary antagonist. A decision that, while well, should surprise no one who knows how important he is to the Iron Man canon manages to be, in hindsight, a remarkable achievement. That's right, people a children's cartoon, that found it necessary to de-age Tony Stark in order to make the series palatable for an all-ages audience, figured out what a big-budget Hollywood production couldn't. How to make the Mandarin work as Iron Man's true nemesis in a modern context. Go figure that one, why don't ya? Unfortunately, in order to properly discuss this interpretation, in order to kind of show my point a bit more, we are regrettably going to have to spoil at least the first three episodes of the show, as well as a major turning point towards the end of season one. So if you aren't into that spoiler life and would prefer to watch it and see for yourself, you could do so on Disney Plus. And this is your official spoiler warning. Feel free to skip over the next couple of minutes or so. I'll be including the timestamps in the description for y'all as usual, so you can skip over this part if you like. Trust me, I definitely understand. I personally maintain a very strict no spoilers rule myself, and I also strongly believe that there is no statute of limitations on spoiler warnings, since everything is new to someone. So I again apologize ahead of time, and I'll see you on the other side. In Iron Man Armored Adventures, The Mandarin starts off as what you would typically expect of when you picture him. The image of an older bearded man, a Chinese crime lord named Zhang, who is the head of the Tong, which is essentially the Chinese Mafia, and owns an antique shop as a cover, most likely to find the Makluan Rings, powerful magic artifacts of mysterious origin, said to grant the wearer unlimited power. It's believed at the start of the show that there are five rings in total, and wouldn't you know it, two of them are already in play from the word go. Jong has the first one, and by a twist of pure luck and coincidence, Howard Stark has just come into possession of the second. However, this status quo doesn't stick around for long. In a delightful subversion, Jong is usurped and imprisoned by his teenage stepson Temujin aka Gene Khan who believes the rings are his birthright and that he is the true mandarin after taking Zhang's ring and chucking him in the slammer in the Tong headquarters he goes on to engineer the plane crash that rocked the Stark's world so he could claim Howard's ring if you remember our brief mention of the series from episode 1 when we talked about Iron Man's origin This is the same plane crash that causes Tony's injury and the reason for his having to wear the heart monitor. With these initial roadblocks out of the way, Jean puts himself on the board with two rings on hand and positions himself to obtain the rest. He enrolls himself at Tony's school, proceeding to befriend Tony in order to manipulate him and use his technical expertise to help him find the remaining three rings and claim the full power of the Mandarin for himself. It isn't learned by anyone in the main cast until the season one finale that there are actually 10 rings, a foregone conclusion to anyone with prior knowledge from the comics, and finding the remaining five rings would become an important plot point in season two. The reveal of Jean as the Mandarin was a beautiful twist that definitely took me by surprise when I first watched it, but it was a welcome one that works perfectly within the world of the series. Going even further by making Iron Man's greatest foe, someone who is close to Tony and company, becoming a natural part of Tony's circle and friends, makes his inevitable backstabbing of the group all the more harsh. Compounded even further when the group learns that Gene was the one responsible for Howard's apparent demise and Tony's injury in the first place. Gene plays all of this off rather coolly and justifies it as he was just using the group to get the rings. And though there are hints that he may have felt at least a tinge of remorse as he had begun to form a few noted connections with the group, he brushes it off as a necessary sacrifice in order to further his raising his quest to retain the power of the rings at any cost, and that he's come too far to turn back now. On the flip side, however, Tony is deeply shaken by Jean's betrayal, and it takes him a good few episodes to recover. Though, outside of his core group of Pepper Potts and James Rhodes, who we won't meet in the comics for a good minute, so sit tight, he's not even sure if he can ever really trust anyone again, which serves as a rather pointed exploration of the trust issues Stony has in the main comics continuity as well. I know I've said this before, but I'ma keep saying it. The show is good, y'all. The show is so good. no excuse. In light of the comic and animation examples provided, I have no choice but to conclude this particular rant by saying that in this fumble fangirl's opinion, the Marvel Studios folks were just cowards, plain and simple. The work was literally already done, and if they couldn't figure out how to use aspects of these incredible interpretations for their own means, then I don't know what to tell you. It's like getting a zero on a test that copied off of in the first place. It's just plain old ineptitude and laziness, and indicative of one of the MCU's greatest shortcomings in regards to its handling of Iron Man and his lore and background. Especially when you consider just how few of Iron Man's actual Rogues Gallery actually get to appear as his on screen adversaries. Think about it. Batman has fought the Joker on screen so many times that we're all sick of the Joker. Superman has had multiple battles of wits against Lex Luthor. Spider-Man's got to face off against Doc Ock and the Green Goblin, and shoot, even Captain America engaged in an epic duel against the Red Skull in his first major MCU outing. It's highly likely that Iron Man is probably the most significantly well-known superhero whose film counterpart does not get to fight his greatest nemesis on the big screen. And that's a crying shame. We aren't even going to get into the horrible habit of giving away known Iron Man rogues for other heroes to fight. Yet. Looking at you, Ghost. Oh, we'll get there. Many people make the excuse that Shellhead just doesn't have as memorable of a rogues gallery as his contemporaries in the Marvel Universe. And maybe that's the case, but for what it's worth, for my money, I feel like they just didn't feel like trying as I've found some of his baddies, especially some of the ones we haven't met yet, to be quite compelling, if not sorely underused. Your mileage may vary once we cross paths with them on this journey. Perhaps you can see what I don't see. Tell me why I'm wrong. Or perhaps I can convince you why some of these guys really just needed the chance in the first place. I'm looking forward to reaching those points in our journey and having those discussions. Thank you all very much for joining me for this monumental introduction of an integral piece of Iron Man's history as we look at the introduction of arguably his greatest nemesis. Before we part ways, for this episode, I want to circle back around to the sixth part into the Mandarin miniseries I mentioned earlier. This series is actually very good, so after we've covered the initial issues the series adds context to, I may consider making a point one episode on it just to run through the general plot and what it adds to the original stories. Let me know if y'all think that's a good idea. Next up in normal continuity is a short glance at another minor villain before we finally meet an iconic femme fatale who would later go on to play a larger role in the Marvel Universe as a whole and even become a breakout character early on in the MCU. Look forward to it! In the meantime, please follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your family, friends, or whoever you think may be interested. Remember, sharing is caring. As always, the intro and outro theme is Breakdown by Kevin McLeod. Until next time, my name is Marissa, and you've been listening to the shining armor podcast the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes marvel comics and just wants to talk about iron man stay safe and be good y'all